One of the things we could do with the model is to create diabetic flies that also have cancer. And Mount Sinai had done initial studies and published on it that patients should, that have diabetes should get completely different drug combinations than patients that just have cancer alone. And that's something oh, with, yeah. that next year or two years is something we're going to pursue as well. And even for patients today, commercially, we can create a diabetic fly for them with their cancer. That's absolutely wild. Welcome to Target Cancer Podcast. My name is Dr. Sanjay Janeja, also known as The Odd Doc Online. I'm a hematologist, medical oncologist, but more than anything else, I love having these kind of conversations. And in this specific case, I learned about something that just blew my mind. It really is one of the most encouraging things on how and where cancer is going. And for that reason, I couldn't be more excited and humbled to have Lara Towert, who has, has a background basically in ovarian health and, and empowering women, but then took a big transition and founded and is the CEO of Vivan Therapeutics. And in this thing, it's gonna blow your mind. They're basically engineering models of your exact kind of cancer type so that they could precisely and in a holistic included way, see what your cancer is sensitive to. So Lara, the crazy thing that you were sharing with me when we were on our call, which again, I've just been talking about a lot is you're doing something where you're looking at you know targeted therapies right molecular therapies precision therapy that we talk about all the time on on the podcast and we use evidence you know basically on data at first sometimes in animal models and then we do uh, trials but what you're looking at is okay yes targets are very you know relevant but is there kind of more complexity the answer is yes when it comes to all kinds of other things that go into these targets and downstream and upstream. And so you have a model where you basically re-engineer those kind of mutations that are unique to somebody's personal tumor, right? And then you basically expose it to multiple things to see is it in fact in real life sensitive or not. That's exactly right. So, so the current standard of care is really looking at single agents and single mutations. And we realize that now that tumors are much more complex and there's multiple mutations driving tumor growth at any time um, and other interactions with, with the genetics as well. But just to start with the genetics, there's not really any model that we have today that could really replicate the true complexity of a patient's cancer. And so our model, the fruit fly, we're able to quickly and um, efficiently engineer and recreate complex tumors in the same tissue where the patient would have the tumor and then use those those what we call avatars for high throughput screening and therapeutics discovery. So when you say that you re-engineer the tumor, like basically what we're talking about is when we get neogenomic sequencing, we've talked about that a lot on our podcast, which is like NGS or sequence your tumor and see what the targets are. You get a whole bunch of mutations. You get ones that are clinically relevant in the sense of like targetable. So you'll get like targetable actionable mutations, which means, hey, we have therapy for these things. Then you get like relevance that don't necessarily mean that there's a target, but they can help us basically say, hey, these are kind of known escape mechanisms, why something may be resistant to a, another treatment that you would give in a general sense, or why something may be sensitive, even though it can't be specifically targeted. We just know that there is a significance there when it comes to treatment response. But then you have a whole bunch of other things that are just like we're learning about, we know, maybe we don't know. How many of that of that entire DNA or basically the blueprint, how many of those features on that blueprint are being coded into these mosquitoes? And is it an organ that's being coded in the, I mean, sorry, not mosquito, into these fruit flies? Is it an organ in the fruit fly? Is it the fruit fly itself that's like, you know, behaving as the organ? Kind of dumb it down for us, really. Sure, sure. So, so it starts off with the patient going to their oncologist, getting a tumor biopsy and a blood sample. And then we coordinate whole exome sequencing of the tumor and the blood. 
we do the, the sequencing of the tumor at a very deep depth so that we're resolving all of the tumor subclones, getting a full picture of, kind of mutational complexity of that patient's cancer. And then we have a proprietary method that was first developed at Mount Sinai Medical Center and then further elaborated on at the company, which enables us to really interrogate or read that tumor exome and identify the mutations that are, one, driving the tumor genesis, but then also what we call passenger mutations that are kind of hopping along and helping with things like vasculature development for the, for the tumor, scaffolding, and things like that. And so we're... I would say Mount Sinai and the technology that we use was one of the first to really start to think about how those factors play a role in the development of resistance mechanisms. And so we do integrate all of that into our models. We also look at copy number variations and we're engineering the tumor to develop and the tissue corresponding to where the patient has the tumor. For example, for colorectal cancer, we modeled the tumors at the, in the lowermost portion of the fly gut. And so the tumor is growing, it's interacting with other organ systems, it's interacting with vasculature nerves, immune cells. There is somewhat of the same kind of, kind of micro environment that you, that you would expect to have in um, a microbiome as in a patient. Similar, not the same. There's limitations in each model. But what we love about our, um, our method is that we're really able to replicate the complexity and in an organ-specific way. Because with things like PDX mice, you're creating kind of subcutaneous tumors. We could engineer up to 20 mutations. So very complex. See, tumors. that's wild because, you know, if you take a lot of our podcasts put together, like Siddhartha Mukherjee, right, Pulitzer Prize winner of embryonal maladies, and what he was talking about with pancreatic cancer, and as well as, as, as the other ones with the immune system, what you're saying is where we talked in, in Sid's podcast about how you can basically tumors have a bunch of mechanisms to recruit, you know, your own cells locally to kind of shield or wall it off from the system or basically deflect immunity. We talked about how colorectal cancers and, and renal cell cancers have little properties to recruit blood vessel growth because that's their, their, their way for pathogenesis. They basically need that fuel and gas to either grow or to like hop away, which is why we use things that block uh, blood vessel growth. And, but you know, for the most part, like you told me on, on the call, which at first I scrunched my eyebrows because I was like, I don't want to believe that. And I'm like, yeah, you're kind of right. You're just attacking one thing in these instances that say, hey, let me just, you know, ablate that one mechanism. So what y'all are doing, it's a Louisiana phrase. I don't know if you're familiar, but uh, <laughs> the, the phrase y'all, but um, what y'all are doing is saying, hey, let's just like do the best we can. You can't just put them into humans. Obviously, that'd be terrible. But how can we see all of those interplays and dynamics that go into something like People don't know with colon cancer, they're like, why does it matter if it's right or left? I had a TikTok comment that this is like getting so ridiculous, like medical, you know, traditional medicine wants to believe this and that. But embryologically, meaning like when they're when you're growing, they actually come from different areas, which is why right-sided behave differently than left. I actually made a video on that recently, um, why some of our treatments work and don't work depending on which side. So you said, let's do that. I mean, if that's the way it's behaving, let's do the closest thing we can to basically having all of those factors. And then what do you do after that? So you put those 20 up to 20 mutations that the cancer has that you believe makes it cancer, makes it malignant, makes it pathological. All those terms mean this thing ain't doing what it's supposed to. What do you do when you have now created this sinister venom from Spider-Man kind of thing into these fruit flies? So we expand the fly population. And for patients, we usually screen at least a half a million flies. So we call this the avatar army. And you can imagine we have all of these flies and we can then use them for high throughput drug screening. So we screen the whole FDA approved library or in Europe, the EMA approved drug library. And 
the, the, the concept that came from Mount Sinai is like, we don't know what is going to work in these flies. We're not going to presume to know. Let's just throw the kitchen sink at it. And so I really love this unbiased approach to mass screening. And, and that's really what and our what name comes from. that kitchen sink? So basically all, all of the drugs that the FDA makes available. So there's about 2000 drugs that have ever been approved for anything. And we screen them alone and in combinations. And so over time, Every time we do a screen, we don't screen 2,000 you know, t- to the third permutation. We, we, we've generated intelligence. So we know now for a sp- specific mutational profile what drug therapies are likely to work. And then we start um, experimenting with combinations. And so we're, we're, with each patient screen we do, we identify many novel drug combinations, usually a cancer drug plus one or two non-cancer drugs, which makes it treatment overall less toxic. And then the combination itself is, is quite affordable because we're looking at really small molecules um, and really interesting drugs. We get we get combinations like a MEK inhibitor with um, anti-asthmatic or an anti-hypertensive or metformin or you know very unique therapies that somehow were working to target that, that patient's unique mutational profile. That is so wild. So if I understood you correctly, we've talked about multiple times, multiple times on podcasts, how there's not going to be a cure for cancer. It's going to be cures like for cancer. Basically, it's going to be a cocktail because you have to block all the mechanisms and pathways. It's almost insulting to say one drug for something that's so challenging across the world is just going to fix it all, right? But what's really crazy about what you're saying in a good way is that, you know, where one, we know certain targeted therapies for whatever reason, about two to 3% of the time work in a tumor where we're just like, bro, this has no reason why, why I don't know, but they're getting a response from this target therapy. That happens. We know that happens. The second thing though that you're doing, when you say FDA approved, and this has never been talked about on our podcast, you're saying you put in a cocktail, a cocktail or exposure of FDA approved uh, medications and treatments that are not necessarily cancer treatments, but that have metabolic or physiologic relevance. Because we know, and I always say this, cancer cells were your regular cell. They have all the toolboxes of your regular cells. So if, you know, beta blockers or inhalers for asthma or metformin, that, it's not like they just hone out and go to the glucose thing or the lung thing. They basically have all kind of pathways where they have actions, and we know those pathways have to have a relevance in the growth of this cell because again it was your normal cell so what if yeah. this thing that the you know the bronchospasm inhaler like if you block that does it somehow is that an escape mechanism nobody's even looking at and that that to me is absolutely wild and you're finding success in a way like it's 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 a the it's tailored of all tailored ways of a cocktail on your physiologic cell. And I bet if you were to just apply that and say, hey, can I steal yours? I have colon cancer too. It's just not going to work that way, right? Just like some people get asthma and some don't. Some people, Tylenol fix their pain. Other people like me, I'm like, how is it placebo? You know, we all have different physiologies in our, in our acetaminophen, sorry, in our uh, cellular makeup. And that's what you're looking at. Whatever your proclivities were since day one, how do they have an interplay with the cancer mutations that you have? And can we just shotgun an approach of, of therapies and see if it's somehow effective? Because we know that all these cascades add up, but not many people are looking into that. And if you just did mini studies on each one, one, it would take forever and be very costly, but two, like you, it wouldn't apply to just that one target. That's your whole concept. Instead, you need to do all of this for that specific cancer because you need to see how they all play together. And it's really something we could only do in the fruit fly because we have such little animals. We're screening, you know, millions and we're able to do it quickly and cheaply. One, we have a century worth of kind of genetic 
toolkits that have been developed to be able to manipulate the fly genome. And we can't really do that with any other organism. So it's really a very finely tuned system for for drug therapeutic discovery and also development. That's that's crazy. I mean, I keep trying to think of a metaphor to really like drive home how wild this is. And, you know, a lot of people say like, oh, I tried melatonin 5, 10, 15, and it didn't work, right? Melatonin, like we, we use for sleep here. I don't know what you're using. London, probably something fancier. But, you know, then I tell patients, I'm like, actually 0.5 could work for you or one, and it's not really weight and all this stuff. It's just you. And there's, that's why the dosing is so challenging. And if you have more, it may not be working. And then, but that's a very one-dimensional example, right? And then you can talk about, you know, I was thinking about beverages with alcohol, like everyone, an old-fashioned, what kind of bitters do you use? Or, or a martini, is it gin, is it vodka, is it dry, is it not? Like everyone has their low preferences, and that's maybe a one-and-a-half dimension. But we're talking about cellular and physiology and everything that, again, you're, you had innate, meaning somatic, meaning the stuff you were born with for your cell that's unique to you, properties, plus you have the tumor properties. But the coding you're doing in the fruit fly, that, that's only including the, the, the somatic, meaning the, the mutations that are in the cancer cells themselves. You don't, do you apply something from what's called germline mutations in your normal cells or genetics also into that fruit fly? We do hold out some sequencing of the tumor and the blood. We subtract a lot of the germline unless it's something that is, is very relevant that we should model. Like but usually we have Tracked, yeah, so that we're, we're really just getting what's driving that tumor. What to add even more complexity onto this, one of the things we could do with the model is to create diabetic flies that also have cancer. And Mount Sinai had done initial studies and published on it that patients should, that have diabetes should get completely different drug combinations than patients that just have cancer alone. And that's something oh, with, yeah. that next year or two years is something we're going to pursue as well. And even for patients today, commercially, we can create a diabetic fly for them with their cancer. That's absolutely wild. And that's where the challenge is like, hey, how come we haven't cured that cancer yet? You know, we cured polio and all that stuff. Like, why not? You know, is it, or are we holding out for money? And that's because not only is the, is the cancer type unique, colon, you know, versus colon one person versus the other, but also right and left. And also what the status of your immune system is and also what your physiologic regulation for diabetes is that's the humility if anything that we are constantly regularly uncovering i had an amazing podcast with sandeep patel at um, uc san diego where i found like they're, they're looking at stuff and theorizing that even pancreatic treatments may or may not be effective because of the the microbiome or bacteria that's around like some of the bacteria either metabolizes the treatments quickly or not so you can really whittle down and you know in an elite world and i think this if it seems like it's working you keep going then you introduce those bacterial species for in the into the gut and you, the whole concept is i love the word avatar did you come up with that it's create an avatar as close to yourself as you can yeah and there's there's so many layers there's you know epigenetics the, the microbiome there's you can go in to so many degrees of personalization we're we're taking off kind of a big bite <laughs> with with what we're doing now but in time we can we can layer and start to explore some of those things actually um with imperial medical center here in london we're doing a clinical study now that's integrating the patient's microbiome so we'll get some preliminary data on that as well. But yeah, it is, it's really exciting. Is there, so in addition to like Medicaid, FDA approved medications that are, you know, for other things like, again, metformin, diabetes, asthma, et cetera, are there any uh, models or are y'all looking into things where you're introducing things like, I get a lot of questions on turmeric or ginger or CBD, you know, marijuana, THC, all the things that are kind of popularized based on some limited data 
Is that part of any of the cocktails yet? or? So I think we have some natural compounds, but we really start off with the focus on, on the FDA-approved library. If a patient or an oncologist had a particular interest, we could always add it. So that's one of the kind of the beauties of, of, kind of doing something so personalized. If the oncologist was, was thinking, hey, I might not want to go you know, fully off-piste and do something like a novel drug combination, but uh, for my patient's next line of therapy, I'm thinking of A, B, or C. We can test A, B, or C and, and kind of rank them by efficacy. And then, for example, we're working with a clinic in Switzerland that is studying mistletoe therapy. I don't know if you've heard of it, uh, but it's a locally active thing that they've had very, uh, very good success stories. I think one of the biggest points here that I don't know that we've highlighted enough in previous podcasts is, you know, we talk about precision and how, but we don't really... We don't build on that. And the, one of the points and concepts here is in 2023, we know, don't let anyone tell you otherwise, that in humility, again, it's just such a humbling feel. It's like Carl Sagan that says, like, you know, astronomy is, is, is a humbling science or space. And I feel the same way about medicine, especially about cancer. We know that there are regimens that work that are so random to us that we just don't know like why, but they work on the cancer. We don't, we, like in our, in, in our own humble understanding, we're like, how does this mechanism play a role? But if you don't have it, the, that other treatment doesn't work in the cancer. And that you're taking that philosophy, that humility and saying, we already have plenty of evidence of this. Let's see like how that relates, not just to multiple cancer treatments and targeted therapies, but also again, other things we know plays a part in cellular physiology. For the same reason, that's why I'm actually super happy and proud that because of Xcures, which is a platform that queries all the basic uh, case reports on random things. So like your cocktail is designed for that person, but if there's studies and somebody says, hey, I use this thing for melanoma, but I also used it for lung and it worked in this renal cell cancer. Like I've had three patients in the last probably six weeks where it was like fifth or sixth line, been taking care of them for years, stage four, good performance status, and there's literally nothing left in FDA approval. There were regimens that are medications very comfortable with because I use them in other tumor types solo. And they said, they gave me the case reports. I had no problem with insurance because I gave the case reports Xers gave me, which is a free service for doctors and for um, for patients. And they all have stable disease. Like, I mean, those three, like I've had you know, not work too. But to think that like now, two or three months down the line, they'd be progressing. And there's no way as a community oncologist or even ac academic, why you would think those would work. But somebody did it somewhere, maybe it was based on a fruit fly, similar thing from Mount Sinai or wherever. But um, that, I think, concept needs to really kind of disseminate in our world because, again, it just gives you the humility of how complicated this is. Exactly. And it's something that we're really tackling now because a lot of the, the, the other companies that are out there are really helping oncologists to decide between different standard of care therapies, not really having kind of the evidence to be able to say, you know, we've, we've done this in a model and the model is telling us this, which because even though we're working with fruit flies, they are animals. And so we have animal data that's, you know, gives information about dosing, efficacy, toxicity, um, and, and we're able to really generate these novel cocktails that hopefully will become more and more integrated into care. So if somebody wanted to do this, they're listening, like number one, what line or where in their cancer diagnosis should they do it? I'm going to give you a couple of questions. You're obviously ridiculously bright, so I know you can remember them all in order and say them backwards. Okay. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but number one, like where in the line should they do it? First line really early on, should they do it later? Number two, should someone stage one, two, or three be considering this? I'm going to go ahead and say probably not because obviously there's obviously very well-approved strategies, especially if you find the five-year survivals, 80, 90%. You want to elect for something like that. So I assume it's stage four. 
Um, and then three, how long is the turnaround? So how late in their disease course, how late is the turnaround? And it sounds like there's not much difficulty getting the medications. You could even pull up a third party app to get the code for like, a, you know, an asthma medication and stuff because for whatever reason it works. So, sorry, that was actually too much for me to remember. How long does no, it take? That's, that's... When in their disease course do they do this? Sure. So I'd say the, the Mount Sinai started a, a clinical trial in 2015. The, the precondition for entry into the trial was patients had to be kind of end stage or stage four, had failed previous therapies and have no other options. Um, out of those patients, it was a very limited number. Three patients had outstanding success, and the public, two published case studies came out of it. Here in London, we've, we've been working with commercial patients from around the world. Um, and we've also had some really standout patient survival stories. And we're starting to, to do a clinical study at Imperial um, here in London. And the idea is to, to start to treat patients earlier. So the patients were enrolled in the study upon diagnosis. They've had whole genome sequencing, which is just part of the grant. Um, and we've built flies for them. We've done the screening. And now the oncologists are deciding when to integrate this into, into care with the idea that it could be second or third line which is really exciting. So we'll get some data to really be able to suggest, um, you know, really improved outcomes from the start. Patients that come to us commercially, it, it really depends. It's oncologists that work with us that are comfortable with the combinations that we identify. We'll have the discussion with your patients and it's really up to the patient and the oncologist when they begin. We, for patients that are gonna get the personal discovery process, which is our, us creating a personalized fly for them for therapeutics dis discovery and screening, that could take up to six months. And for those patients, we really hope that they would start earlier so that they're not really pressured. We're not pressured to get them a recommendation when they need it, when standard of care starts to fail. And then with our new product, TuMatch, TuMatch is now available for colorectal cancer. And it's based upon all of the data that we've generated over years with patient linked with patient's mutational profile and the appropriate treatment recommendation. So that's pretty instant. So. That's where we're going in the you future is for that. all of Is that a new development? Yeah, so um, so we basically, we've just launched TuMatch. So TuMatch is for colorectal cancer only at this point, but it's in development for other GI cancers, lung cancer, pancreatic cancer. Um, and it basically enables us to go straight from whole exome sequence to treatment recommendation. That is fantastic. So basically, like, if I don't have, so one, you say, you know, six months if you do it just, you know, purely like based on your uh, mutations and everything. I like that because somebody may hear six months, like, you know, when you have stage four, first of all, all stage fours are treated differently and like, and mean different things. But secondly, usually first lines in the major cancers, like breast, lung, usually colorectal, like six months is, is hopefully like within still when your first line is working. So you're getting it up front, but then like, especially in those cases where like small cell lung cancer, unfortunately, there's just not a lot after platinum therapy. Uh, and it, it's always hard for me to treat because they just, the odds just aren't as good. Um, so you want something to hopefully like have, you know, in the queue, but some of these other tumors like have more than enough policy. time to be able to. And we call it like an insurance policy. So you, you kind yeah. of invest in it when you don't need it for when you actually will need it. You know, hopefully right. you will. And that's plenty of lead time. Right. Yep. Usually there's plenty of lead time, like, you know, with, with most first lines, fortunately, when it comes to the major tumor types because of how long first lines generally work. I mean, even pancreatic, if you can use full foxiri or uh, gemabraxane, like, um, you know, that you hope that you could, you know, comfortably make it or, or maybe be progressing uh, and then have the data back. But the two match is super exciting because I do have patients where I'm like, I don't have that time or the finances 
obviously like in an ideal world you're just offered you know for free to everybody i hope i i know there's some good ones out there in the in the cancer industry including in on oncology because you have to really i think part of it is just admitting like it is a for business like i and you I, it seems like like-minded and are just kind of like what we want to do for people and helping people but you also have to accept the world is what it is so we would do that for if we could but it sounds like yep. with two match you're trying to at least get there sooner by saying hey these are the things that looked very similar to your right-sided colorectal cancer that's stage four. That, that, like, so a lot of things similar. And here's the mutational profiles, and this was some random cocktail that seemed to work on this patient. And if I'm in a bind and I don't have six months, um, I'm just delighted to hear that that's something that is also available now, and hopefully we'll see more tumor types as they come. Yeah, well, it's actually, it's just as good as the personal discovery process, because basically what we've done is go into large data sets, large databases like Genomics England or the NIH, and we've stratified patients by mutational profile. And for example, for colorectal cancer, there's something like 450 unique mutational profiles that we've seen and that have been registered. And so we've gone through, we've started building avatars to match the most prevalent of those. And that's how Too Match was, was built. So there's about and what's 100. The, what's and the turnaround time on that? So, so, no, so that's basically, that's Too Match. So we've, we've gone through matched, um, we built mutations, right. we, we built avatars to match all of the most common mutational profiles, done the drug screening and identified therapies. And that's, that's the foundation for Too Match. So that an incoming patient is actually matched by pretty precisely to either the exact mutations of a fly that we've built and screened, or to there, it's matched to a cluster by a machine learning algorithm that puts that mutational profile um, paired with another mutational cluster. So really like for that one, like other than outside of the time it would take to get the mutations, like the genomic sequencing with, yeah. you know, Keras and some of the other things we use in, in the States, neurogenomics, um, et cetera, Tempest, you, Outside of that time, <clears throat> when I have that information, it sounds like it'll just be a day or two to be able to see the cocktail if we use too much. Yep, it's pretty immediate. And so we're developing it as, as a SaaS tool and we'll go through the software as a medical device um, regulatory process, which we've now started. Wow, I'm, I'm going to get off this call and just query immediately my colorectals in like a third or fourth line. I mean, this is huge. Okay. So I guess you were just saving for that one for like a little like, and here's the thing on, on the podcast that we didn't talk about. So this is uh, talked about previously. That's amazing. And so, okay, what are some of the tumor types? I know we're both, um, you're very busy entrepreneur person, like doing everything. What are some of the tumor types, if any, that do seem to have more success, I guess, than others? Like, are there some like, yeah, we try, but they're just a little more stubborn, like really low grade lymphomas or something, or, or is there some tumor type that's I assume probably different than your your major ones, and are there some that it works really well in? That's number one. And number two, share a couple of success stories on like that stage four. Like, how long did this cocktail work? Are there people that are alive like a year or two later, and that kind of thing? So, so we, you know, we license the technology in partnership with Mount Sinai, and Mount Sinai set off to really focus on colorectal cancer, and they they chose colorectal cancer one because it's it's complex and hard to treat, and two because most patients don't respond to immunotherapy, and so there's a big unmet need. And so we really focus on colorectal cancer and we've had great success with it. I'd say the model is very good for um, rare genetic cancers, anything that's really genetically driven, not so much anything that has a strong hormonal component. So we kind of avoid breast cancers aside from triple negative. Um, we've done a prostate. It, it really depends on the markers that we identify. Um, oh, that makes sense. But yeah, but there's things like, of course, we can't do osteosarcomas. The flies don't have 
bones. And, you know, we, we tried to find, um, we tried to do the models in, in the exact t- tissue type that the patient has the tumor. Sometimes there's not a direct correlation. Um, for example, for lung cancer, we, we build um, the model and, and there's like a kind of a trachea type organ in the fly that permits for, you know, um, transfer of uh, gases, gas exchange. So we do the modeling there. So it's not exact, but it's a pretty good enough model. Yeah. And for the record, when you say, and I know you know this, but when you say genetically driven, you don't mean like, I want everyone else to know this. It's just, it, it keeps getting misunderstood. Genetic does not mean that you have a gene that your parents gave you. By genetic, all you're saying is, hey, that gene that was a normal gene that has nothing to do with inheritance or BRCA that gene, that switch that we know turns on or tells cells to grow in all of our cells got stuck. That's the stuff that you're just like, ooh, like that's juicy stuff, which is a lot of driver mutation stuff in colorectal and all. And the hormone stuff is different because that is like, we know that they're likely a consequence of basically being fed something that really helps them drive forward. And that makes sense why you don't necessarily like, you know, need to, I would even guess, model that in fruit fly because the, one of the main mechanisms is that hormone. Yeah, the other thing is we we, um, we look to see if a patient, what their microsatellite instability is. So we can't work with patients that. that, yeah, we can't work with patients that are MSI high because obviously they're constantly developing new mutations. By the time we've created a model and screened it, their cancer might look totally different. So we only work with lower stable. It's also good because patients that are MSI high can be candidates for immunotherapy. So right. those patients should go that track. Ones that are not could go down our, our lane. Yeah, and that's, that's a great point you brought up because I feel, you know, I was like hammer firing questions because we were on a call so short, like six months ago when we talked about it, and they were the hard pressing ones. And I'm like, well, how do you account for the, the mutational, you know, colony that was like selected for with a, like a, a, a progression and stuff like that, which I you know, and I'm now saying it's not necessarily a progression, it's a persistence of a tumor that was there that you just are seeing grow and everything else dies. But that's a great point. So that's why you're saying like, hey, the ones that have mutational variability, obviously if we code it and six months later, it's those 20 genes, like your new tumor, like may be different. So when you go like lower grade or more stable, that means the mechanism is being replicated or duplicated in a carbon copy, hopefully more than, you know, much more than these other ones, which is a very valid point. So, I mean, even presumably like slower tumors like renal cell carcinoma, I guess, if it's not immunogenic, uh, as much on the profile as angiogenic. Um, there's a previous podcast for anyone that wants to know the difference. And, or the tumors that are like maybe lower grade lymphomas, those are good, I would guess, because they don't really change as much. They're just super stubborn to be able to treat. And then last question is the survival story. You said you've had a couple of big oh, yes. cases. There was two at Mount Sinai. Yeah, like, like what are, are we talking about? Like, hey, they got three or four months and everything, the disease was stable. Did we see shrinkage? Did we see actually things in a third, fourth line setting that just disappeared and how long? Tell us about that. So we've got a patient case study that's been published. Um, it was pu- published in 2019 that really kick-started us to license the, the technology and start offering it commercially immediately. Um, this patient was 53 years old, man, lived in New York City, was a banker, um, had a nasty uh, KRAS-positive colorectal cancer, had nine genetic alterations, identified and ultimately engineered in the fly, identified a novel therapeutic. It was a MEK inhibitor and a bisphosphonate. Patient was treated and realized a 45% reduction in his target lesions in 27 weeks and had, because it was a a much kind of nicer cocktail than what he had been um, treated with before, had an improved health-related quality of life, went back to work, was going to the gym, and had an 11-month extension of life. And and during that period, it was 
family and he was very was very pleased so that was considered a great success um, another patient also from this uh, from the Mount Sinai trial was a patient with adenoid cystic carcinoma a novel three drug combination was identified um, it was one cancer drug two non-cancer drugs patient ultimately died of COVID so he had a, an extreme extension of life and who knows if he didn't get COVID, how long he would have lived, but also health, health related, um, quality of life improvements there as well. So really exciting stuff. That's amazing. And for people that don't know, like KRS mutated, it's just not ideal. It's if they're more aggressive, they're, they're, they don't respond to therapy as much. So that's huge. And it sounds like, because I have one patient I can think off the top of my head in the past few weeks that I am kind of getting in a bind with, it sounds like I can like hopefully hope, hopefully hope, like that's a medical exact like <laughs> science term. That, uh, that that might be available on the two, that new, that what is the new platform called? Because if it has met two football match. matches, I have a two match where I could actually have a cocktail kind of, why not, you know, kind of uh, concept. Yeah, with two match. So we liked for patients to give us um, whole exome sequence data, but we could also work and we know patients sometimes don't have time or maybe they don't have a biopsy sample existing and available. Um, so if they've got a Tempest, a Foundation One, a Garden, we can take a look at it and we can let the patient and the oncologist know if we have a match. So then once we have a match, then we can discuss payment and things like that. But just if you were curious, if there is something available, we yeah, can Yeah, so you don't waste your money. It's not like you pay it up front and then you hope, and then you're like, oh man, you didn't apply. Sorry. So that's, that's really thoughtful. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. that's thoughtful. That's awesome. Okay, we've talked about so many exciting things that like, I hope anyone hearing this one, more than anything is, is humbled again by the challenges of like cancer and how like nebulous and enigmatic it is but two like very optimistic about really like where we're going and how things are just viewed differently thanks to people like you and Mount Sinai on saying like hey we know what the issues are we know that there's a lot of interplay let's freaking do the interplay like let's like model it the best we can so because of all that exciting stuff I'm going to do something that's not as exciting in conversation but important can you define for us a little bit when you say whole exome or RNA or DNA like give us the kind of 90 second to three minute, not even three minute basics on what those differences are. How would, how would a patient know when their oncologist and they ask for their sequencing or molecular, like how would they, what, what, what are we talking about? Sure. So basically your genome is all of the genes that are, that are encoded to make you, you, um, including exons and introns. And so we, we do whole genome sequencing as well. Um, and I'm usually a proponent of whole genome sequencing because I'm a scientist and I want to know exactly what every what all of the things that are there, even if we don't understand the whole genome today and can't make use of it, I'd like to collect that data so that as we start to uncover and learn more, we can go back and can restudy some of the patients that we've had in the past. Um, so I personally love again, to have... That's, again, germline, like, genome stuff. Like, I just want people to kind of compartmentalize. Like, that's just what well, you're we, given. And... Yeah, well, well I was just we, saying because that's where that's why some people are like, I smoked my whole life and never got COPD and cancer. I don't believe it. It's like that is maybe very likely in part you don't have COPD or cancer because of your 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 genome, like your sequencing and all, all these things that you as a scientist are trying to learn and say, oh, this is why. Like you got to find that stuff. It's not given to us in you know the Bible. That's right. Well, we do whole genome sequencing of the tumor as well, so we really right. dive deep into the tumor. Um, but we realize that in, in in practice today, we're not utilizing the genome as much as the exome is fine. Like it's, it's enough. The, in, the ex, exome is made up of exons, which are the coding regions. So you're just eliminating all of the, the non-coding regions, getting rid of that so we can just focus on kind of what we know and what we understand today. 
Um, and, and then what in are terms we of losing with, the, with not having the introns? So you kind of get rid of the introns. Introns are just the non-coding regions. So we don't need to take a look at those. Um, they're not really involved in driving our therapies today. So the exons are not the ones that the, are involved in creating the proteins and the tools. Like they don't, they're not the blueprints exactly. for like the hammer, the nail, the screwdriver, right? Okay. Exactly. And then in terms of mutational panels, it's just looking at known mutations um, in genes that we know that are causative of, of different cancer types. And we, we know how to target those mutations. So companies have just made simplified panels and we can work with that. There's more complexity to our method than you can really see in a, in a mutational panel, but very good new mutational panels usually cover up quite a bit. I'm so happy and inspired, but I'm also drained because it's just so exciting and so mind blowing and so all of these other things. And this is just, you just walk and talk and breathe this every day. And I can't, I just, I, I, I love that I get to speak with super people. So thank you. Is there anything you want to leave people with? Um, I hope, you know, I know I found, or one of us found each other on LinkedIn. You're there so we can, people can keep seeing what you're doing in science and medicine over your career. Um, and then Vivan, obviously, therapeutics, we're going to put in the uh, link, but is there something else that you just want to share that you know when you're having these conversations i just would hope that everyone that you know i've personally dealt with cancer in my family and i know when cancer is diagnosed people you know it's very worrying and, and for good reason but there are new therapies out there and you know anyone who's interested in even learning more about what we do at vivan and if we could potentially help them or a family member or friend please reach out um we're really friendly and we like talking with people and trying to do the best we can to help um, and then also same with oncologists and medical centers. We're very collaborative. We're really interested in pursuing some of these, you know, the layers, additional layers of personalization. We're really interested in forging new relationships um, and working together. The good ones, fighting the good fight. We appreciate <laughs> you so much, Laura. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me.